1: All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Club. Happy Friday, everybody. I hope you guys are having an absolutely fantastic time out there wherever you are in the world. Um, I've said this in the last couple of episodes, but we're down here in uh, Santa Rosa, California, hanging out with uh, with grandma and grandpa now that we had Astrid um, seven months ago. And so we're getting our California time. Um, so wherever you are, I hope you're having a good time. Today is going to be a good day because we have Gino Barbero with us on the podcast uh, I'm sure you guys have heard of him. He is from uh, Jake and Gino and Wheelbow Profits. They have an academy that helps people crush it in multifamily and they themselves are crushing it in multifamily with over 2000 units and uh, 280 million in uh, AOM. So Gino, I am super stoked to get into this. Thank you very much for having on the show.
0: Gabe, thanks for having me. And you know what a great name for a podcast, the Real Estate Investing Club. I want to be in that club, everybody. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's uh it's good SEO. And to be honest, it's uh um it it wasn't some stroke of genius. I was just COVID happened. I was like, I gotta keep talking to people in real estate. I want to make a podcast. What should I call it? And just like real estate investing club is the most simple thing that came out of my head, but turned out to be a good one. So I like it.
0: Congrats, it's excellent. I love it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I told you before we got on here, we like to start with stories. Uh, I know you got a good one. So, you know, you don't get have to go too far into it, but I've, I've heard your story before and I like it. So, why don't you take us to the beginning of your story? Um, how'd you get started in real estate?
0: I am the former pizza guy. Opened up a restaurant years and years ago with the family, loved it until I didn't love it anymore. And in 2008, I had just lost my dad and I had worked with him since I was eight years old. And when I read the book, T. Harvecker's book, The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, it really it really, what, what's a great word for it? It really affected me because I got really mad at T. Harvecker. Who does this guy think he is? Who is he, some jerk? But when I read a little bit deeper, your fruits are in your roots and you are you know the accumulation of all the things you've done up to that point. And I understood that I hadn't taken responsibility for my life. I was blaming others at that point in 2008. There was a great recession going on and I needed a change. I went out and I found mentorship And once I started learning the business of multifamily, I was fortunate to meet my partner, Jake, in 2009. He moved to Knoxville in 2011. We partnered up. It took us 18 months to find that very first deal. It was a long time. I didn't have the process of buy right, manage right, and finance right. I didn't have that map. Once Jake and I figured that out, I mean, soon after we're able to scale to, you know, several hundred units within the first couple of years. And, you know, since then we've been able to accumulate over eighteen hundred units, two hundred and fifty million dollars in assets under management. And we have eighty time eighty full-time team members on our team.
1: Yeah, man. I love it. Uh, you know, that's a um, it's a story. A lot of people that get into real estate, they come from somewhere completely different. Um, you know, you coming from working a pizza shop is as different as you can get from from real estate. Um, and here you are, however many years later with, you know, multiple millions under management. So for anybody out there is listening, if you are thinking about real estate, you just feel like, you know, it's not for you. Believe me, it is. It's for everybody. Anybody can do it. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, all right. So you guys, you guys got started in 2009 is when you, you well, at least when you met your partner, at what point did you, um, did you close on your first, uh, multifamily? And did you you start in multifamily or did you start in single?
0: Well, for me, you know, I have life before Jake and life after Jake. (laughs) Life before Jake. I was already investing. I had bought a a triplex in 2002. It was beginner's luck. Hit a home run with that deal. Second deal, I I met Maserati Mike. I like to use that story because Maserati Mike pulls into my parking lot one day. He's driving a gold Maserati and I invested in a mobile home park. The deal wasn't bad. It was, you know, he was bad. The partnership was bad. The alignment and values was bad. And, you know, 18 months later, lost 172 grand. Mm. Just too stubborn to realize that, hey, maybe I should learn the business of real estate. Instead, I jumped in headfirst into another deal, which was a strip mall. And you can see, you can see the similarities of what a lot of people do. All we're doing is looking for deals. You know, we don't have a process. We don't know what a deal is. We don't know the business. We're just going to take this massive action. And I was taking massive action, but not enough, not enough education. And after that, that third deal, I'm like, time out. I need to learn the business. I need to learn how to underwrite a deal. I need to learn what due diligence actually means. And when I met Jake, I was fortunate that I had gone through a couple of mentorships i like to say i invested in my education at the time it was a huge expense but that investing the in education when i met jake i was fortunate because i knew the business jake knew nothing but Jake was in the right market when he moved to Knoxville. I was able to ha- utilize him as boots on the ground. And I was able to tell Jake and teach Jake and work in alignment with Jake to start expanding the portfolio down there. And we just honestly got lucky that he moved to Knoxville. It was really under the radar at the time, like most of the Southeast was. And most of the people on this podcast are going to say, oh, you were lucky. It was the timing was right. When we go back to 2011, our memories are real short that was a tough time. There was no money. To, you couldn't raise capital. Mm. The GDP was 1%. Rents for one bedroom were 350 bucks on that first deal we bought. Rents now are 1,100 plus rubs. See how we, we really you know, forget things. And there was a lot of risk. So we just jumped in knowing that I needed to make more money. I've got six children. At the time, I had four. I'm like, Jake, I need to make more money. This whole restaurant thing, transaction thing, every week when it snows, I'm not making money. I need to do something. And I know you don't want to sell pharmaceuticals the rest of your life. So that's how we got together in 11. And like I tell everybody, it wasn't easy in the beginning. It did take us 18 months. You've got Stenziano and Barbaro. In the Southeast, in Tennessee. <laughs> y'all ain't doing business down here. We got some of those. And, and partly it was, it was our fault because we didn't know how to talk to brokers. We thought we were doing them a favor when in reality, they are the gatekeepers. And you know this better than anybody else. They're the ones who have what you want. So you have to learn how to position yourself and learn how to make sure that you can close on the deal that they bring to you and learn to do what you say you're going to do when you're dealing with brokers.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we talk about brokers a lot here on the show because uh you know everybody always says you know deals go to die on market um, but that doesn't mean they go to die with brokers because brokers are the ones that sell them before they hit the market I'm mm-hmm. sure once they get the mar- on market they're you know a little bit there's gonna be some competition you're not going to be as good as get as good of a deal but if you get to the broker if you make relationships uh, before they actually hit the market that's where you get those good deals so um so in your story I, I I liked what you said, 172,000 on that first uh, mobile home park. It's funny. I do invest in mobile home parks and man, that would, that would crush my spirit if I lost 172 on. (laughs) on Brother,
0: let me tell you something. If I had continued to buy mobile home parks in 2005, six, 2007, 2008, we wouldn't even be talking right now. I'd be somewhere in an island. I'd have three times the amount of money because those things were like 20 caps and 25 caps, like legitimate before before private equity started jumping into it. And they were legitimate seller finance deals. This deal that we bought, there was nothing wrong with the deal. It was the management of the deal that really Mm. went south. It was in Mm. Florida and it was just unfortunate. I didn't know what I didn't know. I, I actually entered into a syndication, but we didn't have any PPM or anything like that. That's how ignorant I was. Then I hired an attorney who was even worse than I was. And it, was just, it just went for naught. And that that was the big learning lesson to me is if you're going to find a partner, make sure that you your values align. And we talk about it, Jake and myself, it's values-based decision-making. Your values, you know, your decisions need to be based upon your values. Now, for Jake and myself, it's long-termism. It's buy right, sit tight, no shiny object syndrome, no deal is better than a bad deal. And it's okay if you only do 100 units one year. You'll 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 get it the next year. And I think that's what's really served us really well. And when I look back, doing a couple of deals a year, before you know it, you're at five, six hundred units. And before you know it, you're at a thousand units. And we're not outgrowing our infrastructure. We're not stressing the business out. And we're buying good quality deals that will cash flow in the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No shiny object. Um, That is easier said than done because one of the reasons I love real estate is there's so many different ways to do it. Like you can buy self-storage, you can buy mobile home parks, you can buy apartment buildings Um, and you can, even within those, you can do different strategies. And so Mm -hmm. there's always a a shiny object. There's always something out there that's luring you in saying, Hey, this is a, this is a fun thing. It's new thing. Why don't you give me a try? But, um, but I, I agree with what you say. It really, you see more success when you choose a lane, when you choose an asset, and then you just get really good at that asset, buy deals that aren't you know, grand slams because they got a lot of risk, but buy those base hits and just keep going forward and forward every single year uh, until you get your, to where you want to be.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. And the only caveat that I would add is the framework, buy right, finance right, and manage right should be utilized for every niche. Because when you're buying a self-storage deal, well, what's your buy right criteria? What market are you going to be investing in? How are you financing the deal? And who's managing the deal? So if you can look at it from those three pillars, whether you're buying a single family home portfolio, whether you're buying mobile home parks, whether it's multifamily, office, commercial, whatever it is to us, that framework has helped our students close over 75,000 units. They've raised over 400 million bucks. And more importantly, you can even buy a business using that framework we have students who are buying e-commerce businesses and coffee shops and and retail because it really is the framework the foundation you're laying that foundation and understanding those three those three pillars will allow you to go into eyes open and actually have a strategy to actually execute because it's a lot of fun to do the buy right and the finance right. Those are the first two legs in the wheelbarrow, the back legs. They're fixed. Once they're done, they're done. But if you don't know how to manage your asset, that wheel of the wheelbarrow, which is in constant motion, you're not going to make money in this business. I, I would venture to say you're going to lose money in this business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the hard part. Um, okay. Before we move on to your story, I'm just curious, and you know, getting into the age thing. We, if you don't want to tell me, that's fine. How old were you when you bought that uh, that first multifamily?
0: I was 32 years old when I bought my first triplex. And then okay. 35 when I met Maserati Mike. And, and people have to understand, it's not the amount of money that you have that's going to make you successful. Because I had capital in my mid-30s. I, you know, The, the economy was doing really well. I was a really good saver. So I was able to save money and to be able to create wealth you need to be able to save some of your capital. There's just no way about it. You can do owner financing, seller financing, but if you can't save the proceeds of the equity, because when you buy real estate, it's great. Everyone thinks you make money on the buy, and you may make money on the buy, but you make money on the exit. And that's whether it's selling the property or refinancing the property. And when you get a big, nice check, if you can't put some of that money aside and put it into the next deal, you're going to be spinning your wheel. So it's really important to understand that. And for me, losing that 172 grand, I always share the quote: a person with money meets a person with experience. That person with experience gets the money, and the person with the money gets the experience. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I wasn't dissuaded about it because at that point, after I lost that money, I'm like, if Maserati Mike can go be doing deals and, and other people are out there doing it, it's not rocket science. I just have to learn how to do it. I was just so caught up being in the restaurant industry for so many years. that I had my blinders on. And now that I look back at it, whatever business you're in, there are so many things that are very similar throughout business and at Jake and Gino we like to say we create multifamily entrepreneurs you're not just stacking assets you're not just buying buildings you're you you're what i love about it is you're buying a scalable business you're able to buy these assets and hire people and scale the business very similar to what i could have done in the restaurant business i just didn't know back then so yeah
1: yeah and i like that you guys kind of use that framework um so let's kind of let's jump into that a little bit more you've already mentioned it a few times buy right finance right manage right Um, Go into each one of those pillars and kind of give a little bit more uh, color into into what uh, it entails.
0: Let's have a little fun right now. Let's ask the listeners a question. Who's been getting into trouble over the last 12 to 18 months in multifamily specifically? And I wish they could answer, but I'm sure you know.
1: People who bought wrong.
0: (laughs) People who bought wrong, but more importantly, who financed wrong. People who had bridge debt. Short-term financing. Now, that isn't that it, it of itself is bad. The bridge financing is just that the time constraints on it and the way interest rates shot up. And people can make all these excuses. And insurance went up, and blah blah blah. But when you're when you're when you're buying short-term debt, you have to be careful. There's a lot of risk. We'll use some type of short-term debt. We'll use community banks or credit unions. We'll use something called a loan to cost, but it's got at least a five-year term. It doesn't have this 24 or 36 month turnaround when you're in the midst of COVID trying to reposition an asset when you can't even get windows. The Labor shortages are all over the place and you've got a hundred unit asset that you need to reposition in two years. If you're new at the game, it's going to take you a little bit longer than two years. And then all of a sudden your debt, your cost of capital triples. So the finance right for us has been really the most solid pillar in this part of the market cycle. And, you know, we've, I'm trying to think out of our entire portfolio, we've probably got 30 deals. The next loan that's coming due is August of 2026. So we still got another two and a half years before anything comes due. So we do practice what we preach. Now, the downside is if you're going to long-term fixed rate financing and what we've been doing in 2022, it was very hard to find deals. It was very hard to compete because people are buying stabilized assets on bridge debt. Let me say that again buying stabilized deals on bridge debt now people who have been experienced have been who've been through a couple of market cycles knows that that's not going to end well and it hasn't ended well so for us that shiny object stay within the pillars of the of the finance right now the buy right for us is so crucial because you need to have clarity you need to have focus and unfortunately the buy right does change with market cycles. In the beginning, when we started buying early on in the buy cycle back in 2011, 2012, 2013, you could buy older assets, see assets, reposition them, and if you want to flip or refinance, that's what we did. But as the market started getting longer and you know overpriced, as we like to say, in 2021 and 22, those older assets are pretty similarly priced to the newer assets. So why would I buy a 1960s you know that has aluminum wiring that has you know federal pacific breakers that's got shot roofs when i can buy something a little bit newer and that has a lot of less capex requirements so for you listening you need to focus on what your buy right criteria is and let's really chunk this down median income understand what median income you're looking for in the marketplace understand the markets that you're trying to invest in if you're new one market pick one market and focus on that market because of the relationships you need to create with brokers Let's go with the vintage. What age property are you going to buy? Is it going to be a 60s, 70s, 80s? And every market's different because some markets may not have newer assets. If you're in Cincinnati or in New Hampshire, pretty hard buying a 2010 asset, right? It's re- They don't they haven't built them. But if you're looking for a brick, right? Looking for a brick asset. Vintage. Unit mix. How many units are you looking for? 10 to 300. That's what we're looking for. We'll buy smaller assets. Unit mixes. You guys, you lo-
1: you guys still buy... Something as uh, as Dude,
0: we just, we just actually yesterday had a portfolio we bought two years ago because two years ago, we weren't buying bigger assets because there was nothing out there. We bought a 22-unit portfolio. It was a 12-unit, a six-unit, and a four-unit. We just sold the six-unit, closed on it yesterday. We doubled our money in about two years. We just bought it. We put it on it. We matriculated it. It was in a great market, great area. We have scattered sites where we can buy a 20-unit and a 30-unit and bundle them together, and it really works well for us. And the great thing about it is If you're adding value to it and you outgrow that asset, it's there. You can always sell it and go into the next bigger one. We're just, you know, the whole belief that these gurus out there are telling you go big or go home, that's not our belief. The last couple of years, it was challenging to buy bigger deals. Like I had said, in 2021, we closed on 100 units. It was three deals. 2022, very similar. Four deals, 106 units. Now, last year, we closed on 333 units. 132? 132? 105, and a 96. So we had much more success in the bigger assets. But with the smaller assets, you're buying them. There's a sweet spot, in my opinion, Gabe. You know, the smaller deals, the mom and pop investors can't really afford them. They can't afford a 20 unit for two, two and a half million bucks. And the private equity is like, I don't want the $2 million asset. So we have, I think, an advantage where we can really put them into our other portfolio, roll them into, have that management experience, And really reposition them and if they work well and we like it we'll keep the asset if not we'll just roll that asset out and we'll just you know reposition into another one but to finish with the buy right right once again think about the unit mix unit sizes if you want if you want to put any type of amenities we like townhomes with garages if there's decks, we'd like the decks covered. Try to get as crystal clear as you possibly can. And I, th- I think in self-storage, it'd be very similar. You're looking for areas where, where population is growing. You're looking for a specific type of build, unit sizes. Do you like garages? Do you like lockers? I mean, it really comes down to that. Now it's not to say that if another asset comes across your desk and you know, look at it, but you know, when that deal comes across your desk, you don't even have to underwrite it. You you feel it in your bones. That is up my alley. I mean, that's what you're looking for. So if you can get crystal clear, you can even 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 convey it to the brokers that this is what I'm looking for. So when they find that deal, they call Gabe up and say, Gabe, I got this self-storage that I think you'd be interested in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The one, um, just, uh, listening to kind of your strategy there, the one question that I'd actually post to you, especially if you're putting on the hat of somebody, let's say somebody who's just getting into the game, they're just looking for their first kind of deal. Um, the smaller properties when when I just got started, I bought small self-storage facilities and because i thought there was less risk but once i got into them i realized there's actually more risk in a smaller property because the cash flow one thing goes wrong and that cash flow is gone um like that I, I found that there's a little bit more uh, a security in a larger asset it doesn't have to be 100 200 300 units um but it it does you know a 10 unit property um i would almost say that there's a little bit more risk in those properties just because you know if something goes mm-hmm. wrong and you don't have a, a team in place already you you might get into a sticky situation uh, that's a
0: valid point i i really enjoy, i really like that point the only thing i would say to counter that is behaviors is are belief driven if I'm here to tell you, you got to get into a 50-unit deal, I'm going to do it. If you don't believe you can do a 50-unit deal, you're never going to pull the trigger. But if I say to you, cut your teeth on a 10-unit, because you're going to have to do work. You're going to have to right. work with work with residents. You're going to have to turn those units. And you can learn. I just had a student call me yesterday. He's got a deal in Tampa, six duplexes, 12 units. And he's already thinking about, let me buy this deal. How do I reposition it? Now, if it was an 80-unit deal, and you've got 30 vacants, and it's your first deal— there's a more risk in that than dealing with a 10-unit mom and pop where you can do one unit at a time. If you reposition one unit on a 12-unit, it'll take you a year. All you need is one unit a month. That's something where somebody starting out can really handle and can really absorb. And I'm, I practice what I preach because Jake and myself, we started out with a 25-unit deal. And that for us we had three of us. It was me, Jake, and my brother, Mark. We were able to handle that 25 units. And that was enough bandwidth because we're both working full-time jobs and we're learning the business. Now, if I had started with an 80 unit, it would have been much more challenging. So I agree with your premise hundred percent, but the, the great part about it is if you do it right, the 10 unit, you buy it right. And you add equity within the next 12 or 18 months, you can sell that asset, pull the equity out and roll it into that 30 or 40 unit property that you're looking for.
1: Yep. Yep. I love it. All right. So we've gone through buy, we've gone through finance, um, take us to manage, uh, and let's, let's get through that last pillar.
0: This is something exciting for me because Jake just came across one of his epiphany moments. And if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And we really, you know, are really strict our KPIs, but what Jake likes to say, he likes to call himself and we wants to really strive for being the Chick-fil-A of property management. He wants to deliver that kind of superior service and, What's ironic, what's really interesting is what you focus on tends to grow. One of our KPIs was economic occupancy in our portfolio last year. We hit 95% economic occupancy over 1,800 units. To me, that's phenomenal. But that's only part of the picture. Are those economically occupied units, are they renewing every year? And are you delivering service because, you know, that great service? Not always. So what's the next benchmark that Jake said he had to look at? percent repaired. And I've never heard this before. No one's ever talked about it in our industry. But think about if you have 100 units and you've got 10 work orders open, 10 out of 100 would be 90% repair open. That means it's not bad having 10 work orders. We're trying to strive for 95% in in that scenario and some of our properties have 75%, some of them have 98%. So that really when you're looking at managing a property, try to figure out what your KPIs are, whether it's delinquencies, whether it's renewals, whether it's guest cards, people coming in, how you know what the percentages of turning that unit into actual a lease Looking at those KPIs, and it's amazing. And try not to do everything in one quarter. Try to focus on what you think you should do quarterly. Pick one of those KPIs, focus on it, see how better you can get. But I'm excited because now all of a sudden we have our head maintenance tech going through it weekly, doing his weekly L10s, and you can see on the board, hey, Knox one, you guys are crushing it. Knox 3, what's going on? For instance, you've got 78% work orders. How can we raise that? Let's focus on that. And now when when the maintenance tech start focusing on it, and it's part of your big, hairy, audacious goal, and they understand that's how we keep residents. And if we get that number up, we're going to have less units to turn. That means there's less work for you guys in the future, and there's also less work orders to come about because if you're being proactive about it, you're going to have less work. There's going to be less calls over the weekends. That kind of stuff is really what I think makes management exciting when you can start focusing on and creating what KPIs are going to move your business.
1: Nice. Yeah. And um, I, I like that, that KPI uh, focus because yeah, like what you said, what you measure or what what you measure or what you focus on, whatever what what you're measuring is actually going to be improving. I can't remember what yes. the phrase was, but that's if
0: you gesture. can't measure it, then you can't manage it. There yes. we go. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I like that. Uh, and the thing about KPIs is, like, once you get one down, uh, you can improve the business by just you know keeping keep finding those things that need to be measured. Um, you know, you start with one, and then you nail it. You get on to the next one, and each time you you choose a new KPI, you uh, you improve it. You, then you know, over time, your your entire portfolio is going to be taking on, it's going to be hitting the NOI eventually, even if it's not directly related. So yes, Um, love to hear that. All right. Uh, I have taken a peek at the clock. Um, You know, this is a short podcast and we have run through our time. So it is time to move on to the quick question round. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. It starts with education. It could be any form, could be books, could be YouTube shows, could be Netflix shows, whatever. Just give me two recommendations, one for Life Wisdom and then one for real estate.
0: Life Wisdom, The Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel, great book. I understand that the relationship that you have with money It'll change everything. If you're starting to self-sabotage yourself, why? If if you don't like to spend money, why? If you don't like to save money, you have to understand that relationship with money. And and for real estate, there's so many real estate podcasts out there. I mean, just go to meetups. I I think going to meetups and going to seminars and going to events, it's not just the education. It's hopefully they'll teach you how to implement what you're learning, but you're also expanding your network. That to me is truly important.
1: Yep, absolutely. All right, next question is for your younger self. Um, so let's go back to the Gino uh, who is just meeting Maserati Mike. Um, go back to him, look him in the eye, give him one piece of advice, move him forward.
0: Are you sure you want to do this? And are you sure you're ready? Okay. And are you, are you sure that you have a team around you? If you can say yes to those three, then go ahead and do it. If not, then just pause. And learn what you're about to get into.
1: Uh, I like I, I like the team aspect because um, you know there's definitely and I've done deals as a solo GP, uh, but it is so much harder. There's so much more stress, and honestly, it's not as much fun. Um, it's more fun when you have a good team and you have good partnerships in place, and uh, and you can just hit the ground running. So mm-hmm. good advice, um, and that moves us to the next question. <laughs> this is about the U.S. It is a big place, a lot of opportunity out there. Give me the single metro you're most excited about investing in today.
0: We're in the Knoxville metro. So, I mean, I think it's an amazing state. I think there's a lot of growth. When people from California are moving there, they're pushing up asset prices. People from New York are moving there. I I don't think you can go wrong investing in the Southeast. I really don't. Florida may be a little challenging with with insurance, but long-term, the demographics are there. South Florida is turning into New York City, very low cap rates, very little cash flow. If you understand that and you you start investing for capital appreciation great but the carolinas are really good uh you know georgia's got some really excellent markets alabama's got great markets in it texas just be careful property tax is a little bit high uh, asset prices are a little bit high but why because people are moving there, there there's demand for assets still there and it's going to continue to grow so i would be you know i'd venture to say not one metro but hey the southeast has got a lot of opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. No love for the for the Northwest Pacific Northwest, but you know that's okay because most investors come on and say the Southeast. So, uh, means there's some some truth there. Um, all right, next question. This is a good one for you because you are a mentor to so many people. Um, but this is about your mentors. Uh, none of us are islands. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. So, who is one mentor who has contributed significantly to your career?
0: You know. I never met Zig Ziglar, but I remember listening to all of his tapes in the car. I'd be driving, I'd have the CD in, and I'd be listening to his messages and his stories. And the thing that I love most about Zig is he always called himself a teacher and not a speaker. And it's one of those things where speakers, great, they make you feel good, they give you inspiration. But if you really listen to his words of wisdom, there was a lot of teaching involved there. He was a salesperson you know, at the core, but he also gave words of wisdom and he was also a person of character, someone who, you know, really was a believer and who also walked the walk. I mean, talk to talk. And to me, that was great. So if I had to say that, if the model would want to model myself around somebody would be Zig.
1: Yeah. yeah, It's funny you said that. When I was, um, it was like high school or something. I got his, back then it was CDs of his, uh, I don't know if it was like a seminar he did or something, but uh, I loved that thing. And I thought he, you know, he's a very positive guy. Um, yes. Yeah. Really, really good message to say. All right. Next question is about lessons learned. Uh, every, not every deal goes the way we expect it. Sometimes a wrench is thrown in there and the uh, deal goes a little sideways, but in those deals, we learned the biggest lessons. So what was a deal that went a little sideways for you guys? And then what was the lesson you pulled from it?
0: For Jake and myself, we've, we have want to say luck or not luck, I've made all those mistakes before I started partnering with Jake, I truly did. We've had an amazing run over the last 10 years and we've bought right. But one deal that when I look back, that we made a mistake on, even though we sold out and you know, it was very smart of us to get out of that deal because the market was still rising. I would say there was two facets to it. Median income was lower than what we than what we thought. And the second one was, was an older build. I mean, it had clay pipe for plumbing and it was just an older build, beautiful property. I mean, it checked a lot of boxes, two bed, one and a half bath townhomes, brick. Uh, the, the residents paid for their own water. It was, seemed like a really decent area, but we just underestimated the plumbing and the capex that was involved. And those older assets, they tend to be older. Now, fortune we bought the property right we bought it at a good price point we were able to exit it two and a half years later but that one property i always say roe roe return on effort there was a lot of effort put into that property it was sucking the bandwidth a lot of out of a lot of our other deals and fortunately we were able to say to ourselves we can't write the ship let's just sell even if we had to sell at a loss we probably would have sold it at a loss but we were able to exit it right so that's why Talking about the buy right criteria, that really became the focus after that deal, making sure that we hit certain parameters, those older properties and those lower median incomes are going to be much more challenging for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that return on effort. Um, that is uh, something I, I don't really calculate, but um, I definitely should be when I'm looking at deals because some of them look look great, but then you got to think like, oh man, it's going to be a heavy lift to get that, uh, to turn that around. So is it worth the, uh, the headache, the gray hairs that you're going to get from it?
0: That's another, uh, real quick, Gabe, that's another question that if you're just starting out, maybe you need to take a little more risk and need a little more sweat equity. That's why the buyer criteria changes because early on, Jake and I would have bought a lot. We bought a lot of the deals. Would we buy that very first deal we bought today? Absolutely not. But it was amazing back then. We still own it. So don't, be afraid to put a little effort into when you're starting it. But as you're transitioning and as you're cycling your portfolio out and getting to these bigger deals, you'll start seeing how things are changing for you. You'll get a little bit more picky with that prior criteria.
1: There you go. All right. That leads us to the very last question. This is for the listeners. Um, You've given us a lot to think about. Uh, I'm sure people want to reach out, get in contact with you. Um, What is the best way they can get in contact with you? And then what what can they expect when they reach out?
0: JakeandGino.com go to the website. We've got four shows, weekly airing. We've got podcasts, blogs. I would just go to jakeandgino.com forward slash webinar. You can sign up for our live monthly webinar that Jake and I do every month. And it's on a different topic because one month we're doing finance, one month it's managed right, one month we have two students closing deals. So just go to jakeandgino.com forward slash webinar and you can sign up for our monthly webinars.
1: Cool. I will put that link in the show notes. So if y'all want to reach out, just click the little more in the description. It'll pull down that full description. And in there, you can find Gino's link. All right, Gino, that wraps it up. Again, thank you very much for hopping on the show.
0: My pleasure, brother. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. For everybody who's here with us today, thank you guys for showing up. You are the reason we do this. So if you guys have any questions, reach out to me, Gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. Uh, and if you guys want to support the show, just you know, give me a holler. Gabe, wait, I already said that. If you want to support the show, <laughs> yeah, just give us a like, subscribe, share, all that jazz. Other than that, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Uh, keep rocking real estate. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. All right. Before I officially sign off, I have a quick announcement to make.